Welcome. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lungani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work toward your ideal retirement. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams. Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. I'm your co-host, Roshan Lungani, here with Adrian Nicholson. Eric is at a conference this week. I'm looking forward to this episode. I think we've got some good stuff. Adrian, how's your week been? My week's been awesome. Just been reflecting on my summer so far, and it's been great. Just enjoying the couple handful of days we have left, and excited to be here on the podcast, but everything's been good on my end. How about for you? Uh, everything's good. Schools are back in session for us. Kid, things are getting uh, back to the regular routine, which I which I like. Awesome. Great. So, Adrian, why don't you um, lead us right in? We Adrian found a great article about um, where Wall Street's conventional wisdom is wrong, and we've got some thoughts on items shared, some of our some of our own. Adrian, why don't you uh, kick us off? Yeah, so let's just dive right into it. So the first piece of conventional wisdom that we're going to be analyzing today, whether we agree with or what are some things that you should really take into consideration other than just taking it fully face value, the first one we're going to have a discussion with is the common one people hear about investing, diversify your investments. And this is just a solid one when it comes to investing. Don't put all your eggs into one basket. That's also another piece of conventional wisdom for right there. So let's start off with that one, Roshan. What's your take on it? Well, I can understand both sides of this. So the argument uh, being that you should not diversify your portfolio. Um, Very famously, Charlie Munger calls it diversification, meaning making your portfolio worse. And I've heard um, another thing I've heard put well is that concentration makes you wealthy. Diversification keeps you wealthy. So with those few points in mind, I think it's worth noting that um, with many of these things, you've got to determine what's best for you as an investor, but you also look at what stage you're in and what type of work or effort you're doing on your investment analysis. If you're just buying things um, without looking into them just because you like the name or the symbol or something, maybe diversification is a good thing for you. If you're doing extensive research and you're finding uh, mispriced opportunities in the market, that's where I'd say concentration might be right for you. What are your thoughts, Adrian? So one thing that comes to mind is you can dilute your winners. Let's say you've been researching some companies that have great potential, make a lot of money, they're, they're solid for your portfolio. If you take diversifying your investments to the extreme, you can just over-diversify and these big winners you have in your portfolio may not see the huge growth that you're expecting because some of those pieces that you add just for that diversification element can really chip away at some of those gains that you would have enjoyed otherwise if you were more concentrated in those those big winners. And that's just when it, that's just how investing works sometimes. You know, you're not always going to get it right. Markets have cycles, so it's just something you have to take into consideration. And also, I guess what I'll point out here is when it comes to diversifying your investments, you really have to analyze and dig deep into this because diversify can mean a bunch of different things. This is just an example that I can give. Let's just say at the beginning of this year, you just decide to own a bunch of different regional banks. You could say, I'm very diversified. I 
own a lot of different regional banks, I'll be good to go. I, my portfolio is solid right now because I don't have all my eggs in one basket. But as we know, at the beginning of the year, the regional banking sector got hit really hard. So even though you were diversified, you were spread across a bunch of different areas, different banks, your portfolio still took a significant hit. So that's why I say when you have a thing that says diversify your investments, you really have to dig in deeper and really do your homework and research to see what that really means for your situation, like you pointed out, Roshan. Well, I mean, on your, uh, I think you hit on a couple things. One is when you said you, you know, diversification can dilute your winners. Well, it can also dilute your losers, right? So that may be a good a good thing in the in the portfolio, um, depending on how you feel about volatility and the ups and downs of the markets. Also, when you use the regional bank example, I would actually argue that if you're all in one sector, you aren't diversified. So if you split your portfolio into every single regional bank. Uh, you're still just in banking, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, that's, a good point. That, that's where I would I would counter counter that. But I, I think the um, the point of you know the 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 uh, article saying things that where conventional wisdom is wrong, I there's a strong case to say the conventional wisdom of diversifying your portfolio is wrong. But I would actually argue for for most people, I think that conventional wisdom makes uh, makes sense just because uh, depending on the work they're doing on their portfolio, the volatility they're they're comfortable with, uh, unless you're analyzing things um, in depth, I think diversification is probably a better thing than concentration for you. Yeah, exactly. And just the whole point why I thought this discussion would just be fun just to have with us today is we're going to talk about conventional wisdom and just pointing out the flaws in it and going against it. It really is an uphill battle because what is conventional wisdom? just advice that most people agree with that they can apply in their daily lives. And what I'm really just trying to drive home is just the concept of just really trying to look at all aspects of it and just seeing what are some maybe flaws in it, what are some things that can go wrong or that you should just consider other than just taking it for its word 100% for, for the face value. So I like how the conversation started off. So let's move on to the next one, which is wait to take Social Security. And this is a topic that we've had addressed a lot in the Retirement Lifestyle Show. But I, one way I just want to start off this conversation is in the article, it talked about how the system may change. And I know that we've talked about that a little bit on this podcast, but what do you think they were referring to about some of the changes that people really need to have on their radar for the future? Well, the big one being if Social Security runs out of money, and there's nothing changed, you know, there's no act of Congress to make some adjustments, then people may only be getting a little more than two-thirds of what they're promised. Oh, wow. So that's where, that's yeah, major. that's where the argument, yeah, it's a, it's a, big, it's a big difference. Now, I'm a believer that, that Congress will act, so something will be changed and people will get what they promised. However, um, I could be completely, completely wrong and then maybe nothing changes and then... Uh, start getting it early makes sense. I, I when I'm analyzing that, I don't uh, let that part of the decision, you know, the change or Social Security running out of money. I don't let that part of this the decision carry that much weight. What I like looking at is how the various income streams, whether you take it at early and pay a penalty, full retirement age, or late being age 70, I like seeing how each of those impact someone's financial plan overall. 
I also like the conversation of um, of uh, family history and life expectancy in that in that case. And finally, if it's a couple, I think weighing what each one gets, especially when you've got a disparity where one spouse has a higher uh, social security income versus the other, yeah, maybe that's a situation where you know you take one earlier and the other later. You know, with all the other factors playing in. So I think if we're saying that conventional wisdom is is uh, stating that everyone should take Social Security late and delay it, uh, then I would agree that I'm not a fan of conventional wisdom there. I would say everyone should analyze where it stands in their portfolio or portfolio, excuse me, in their financial plan. Yes, and I guess one of the main points of this on waiting to take Social Security as you wait to take it, the income that you receive from it continues to grow. So that, I guess that's one thing that comes to mind where people want to try and get the most out of the system, the most in their monthly income. And the only thing I'll add to this is that part where you touched on your income stream. I think that's the driver here on when you should take Social Security because maybe it's something where you consider because you have some assets or in a certain account, it may be not beneficial for you to start withdrawing from certain accounts because you want them to grow and just do it in the best way the best tax efficient way as possible. So maybe that might be a time where you say, hey, maybe I should be taking social security now so my accounts, my investments can just grow. I don't have to touch them right now. And that might be your situation. But you know, you brought up some great points as well, Roshan. That'd be the only thing I'd add. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I think what bo- both of us touched on is, is seeing uh, that you can't make that decision in a vacuum. You've got to look at everything else going on in the portfolio. Awesome. Yep. So we're going to move on to the next one. This is when the market is down, do nothing. And that's something, too, people might be familiar with where they're saying, you know, don't touch anything right now. Markets will recover. You don't, you don't want to have to sell. The best thing you do is just wait it out. And this one, again, it's going to be a, a deep conversation. We talked about this before. So how do you want to start this one off, Roshan? Well, I would... Uh, like some of the others, I, I almost wonder if this is gets taken out of context. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you what mean, I mean by that? By that yeah, is okay. If yeah, if you if you say when the market's down, I'm going to sell everything and go to cash. Do nothing may be the better move than selling everything and go to cash. Whereas on the other side of it, if what you're doing when the market is down is trying to find better opportunities and adjusting the portfolio accordingly, I think that would be a good thing. So if, if, our, if our options are just do nothing or do something, I would agree that this conventional wisdom of doing nothing may not be ideal. But if you look at people who do, I've seen people do this, you know, sell. And I was actually talking to someone recently who did that at the beginning of 2022 and now scared to get back in the market because they're worried it'll go down because they, you know, move their entire portfolio to cash. So whenever we discuss this, I always say that, that the risk of doing that is you've got to be right twice. You've got to be right when you get out and when you get back in. And the likelihood of you being able to do that is incredibly low the chances are incredibly low. What I'd add to this as well is, well, again, it's a lot that bakes into it. it all comes down to the individual here. But doing nothing can can be difficult sometimes too because let's just say, let's just take an example where 
the topic here is when the market is down, do nothing. Well, let's just say you've been researching, you've been following a particular stock that you think is going to be a good long-term opportunity right now. Maybe this could be the market giving you an opportunity to buy at a lower price too. So doing nothing in that example may not be favorable if there's something that you think is being impacted, not because there's anything fundamentally wrong with the company, but that's just how markets are sometimes. They can really drive down good companies, good stocks, whatever it may be. So that's where the opportunity arises here where doing nothing can, can be easy, but if you really want to roll up your sleeves and search for opportunities and a way for your portfolio to recover faster, doing nothing may not be uh, a valid, valid point here. So that's the thing that I would add here. Yeah, and Adrian, you and I have talked about banks um, uh, many times on this during the regional banking crisis and trying to take advantage of any opportunities that are potentially available there. Uh, great time to have our disclosure. Please, this is not uh, investment advice. Talk to your advisor if you need help. We're available to talk to uh, as well. So uh, that being said, that I think is an example of going uh, where the conventional wisdom goes wrong, as the article says, when the market's down, do nothing. Now, the markets at a whole weren't necessarily down. That sector was down, but uh, that created a potential opportunity. Yep. Any other points that you want to add to this? I think this is a great one that we touched on a lot before, no, but this is a good one. Yeah, yeah I would just summarize that um, that if you're not making a strategic move, um, and you know, I think uh, if Eric was here, he would definitely use the phrase of rules-based. If you're not making rules-based decisions, when the market is down, do nothing might be a good thing for you. Whereas if you are following rules that you've set for yourself or looking at opportunities, then when the market's down, do nothing is, is not uh, is, is likely not a great move. Yeah, awesome. That's a good final point on that one. I'll tackle the next one. And the next one is you need a budget to determine your cash flow. And one thing I'll point out with this uh, conventional wisdom is that budgets tend to really focus on where the money is going as far as your expenses on a monthly, daily basis, whatever it may be. And this is why I think where a budget helps you determine cash flow, that's really half of it because it's not showing you where the money is also coming from. And that's an extremely important aspect of cash flow, the money that you have coming in and the money that's going out. So I think budgets really here address half of the thing that people are looking at when it comes to determining their cash flow. And it's extremely important for you to really pinpoint your incoming and outgoing cash flow because this really shows you how you're doing on a monthly basis. And if you have excess savings or you don't have excess savings and how you can fine tune that and adjust that into your plan. Yeah. And you know, the other side of this, to piggyback on what you said, we'll deal with people and work with clients all the time where doing a budget or having a budget can be very intimidating. And sometimes the back end check is, okay, we don't have every single category that your money's going to, but we start an automatic savings. So we actually can get an idea of what's, what's left over. And that those data points are very important in projecting retirement. So yeah, if you, if you, there are definitely people that will never do a budget. It's, it's uh, an intimidating process for them or they just don't like it. So there are other ways to determine cash flow. So I, w I think I would by and large agree with this one. 
Yeah, like you mentioned, there are so many different ways for you to pinpoint how to manage your cash flow. Budget could be a part of it, but there are a lot of things that get baked in there that you can uh, figure out. And there's a lot of apps and stuff that you can use nowadays that can help you track that. So the, the, really, the sky's the limit to find ways to figure out how your cash flow is looking and how that works for your, for your plan. So the next thing I'm going to drive us into is you will spend less into in retirement. And like we mentioned before, this is going to be different for everybody because everybody's situation, everybody's retirement looks different. So this is an easy one to go up against. But the reason the article brought this up and what they're pushing back against saying you will spend less in retirement is they drew out three examples that when people retire, maybe they're going to be gifting more to children or grandchildren. They might be traveling more because they have more time on their hands. And then the last thing that they point out is that greater health care needs will arise. And I think that's too, that's something that people need to consider about the cost of retirement and why they might not be spending less in retirement. And I definitely recommend people checking out our previous podcast, Facing the Realities of Retirement Head On. Our third segment on that podcast, we really outline medical costs and what you could be facing on there. And some of the numbers might be very uh, come out of nowhere for some people and that they need to consider where it comes to their financial plan. Yeah, uh, I completely agree with you. I think of a couple things. One is clients of mine, and I do have clients who spend less in retirement, but I also have clients who spend more. Uh, so it, it, this is very individualized and figuring out what your retirement will look like uh, will help you determine what your spending habits will likely be and then plan for it accordingly. A few things that that um, I've seen clients do spend more on are things like travel, you know, traveling more or traveling nicer. Another one is um, golf uh, club memberships. I've seen people who played golf but didn't play that much. Then in retirement, they play more. So they want to they want to to join a club or even just, you know, the greens fees or more if you're playing more more often without joining a club. Um, we used to give people the analogy that, that we would, or the question we would ask is, do you spend more, you know, this is while someone's working, do you spend more during the week or on the weekend? And, you know, most people spend more on the weekend. And then the follow-up to that would be, well, retirement, it's always the weekend, right? So I, I would agree with this one that, that the um, uh, conventional wisdom saying you'll spend less in retirement, I don't believe is accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I guess one thing that comes to mind is sometimes it does smooth out where when you begin that first transition, maybe your expenses are very high because you want to, you know, check off a bunch of things that you've had on your list that you wanted to do once you begin retirement. So maybe the first couple of years might be very expensive, and then after that it might smooth out or you might see a significant drop too. So that would be the final thing I'd add that people should maybe take into consideration as well when it comes to this uh, conventional wisdom piece. The second to last one I have on my list is money will undermine your child's work ethic. And then I'll, I'll start us out with one of the points I brought on. Um, that, tep- again, is going to be different depending on the individual and the set of values that they have too, where the article really points out that that's a, something that people should hone on is the values that you teach regarding money, such as saving, investing, needs versus wants, giving. Those values can really help really shape people's perspective and when it comes to kids, how they see money 
versus just gifting them and not really teaching any of the important aspects that come to money as well. Yeah, I'm trying to look up the book that I had read this on to give it uh, credit, but adding on to what you just said, um, with teaching the kids about money, and I, I think this was Morgan Housel's book, the, the Psychology of Money, where where I'd read this, but uh, I could be wrong on it. But what they had said was that it's an observed behavior. So if you are telling your children save your money, save your money, save your money, and then they see that you're not or you're struggling every month, the children tend to adapt the behavior they see versus what they're told. So uh, I would agree with you that you know money ruins a child's work ethic. Maybe the case for some, it may not be the case for other. I also think it depends on the child because each each child is different. Um, however, uh, I, I agree with what you said. The way you teach the children about money or what they observe as far as how you handle money, I think will carry greater weight than just saying that giving them money or not giving them money will have an impact on them. Yeah, and the, another side of it too is providing certain skills and experiences as well when it comes to managing money for kids. For them to physically have some interaction or some type of real life experience with money will teach them a lot along with what you mentioned observing can really make them have a whole look at how money applies in their lives and can really help motivate them and keep them on the track that they have without having money really undermine anything about it. So that's also something too that I would point out. The observation fact and just having them apply it in their everyday life can be ways to improve this. So the last one I have on my list is when volatility arrives, consider taking steps to minimize the swings in your portfolio. How do you want to tackle this one, Roshan? Yeah, well, I would, I would, once again, these are all statements that, that, that uh, conventional wisdom um, speaks towards, and they're saying conventional wisdom gets it wrong. I would actually tend to agree with this, right? At the very beginning, we had talked about uh, diversification, and I mentioned how uh, Munger uses the term diversification. Well, here's another, another one where uh, oftentimes, volatility can be your friend in the sense that if things have gone down more than you believe they should and there's an opportunity for for the upside you may have just been given a gift from the markets in terms of buying into the volatility so um i and you know we have the um the index the vix you know the volatility index sometimes i'll call it the fear the fear gauge and you know uh, when it's high is is in many time, many cases, I don't want to say in all, it's is where the market's creating some opportunities. So I would I would agree with this one. Mm -hmm. And I think also one thing that gets uh, should be brought up here is the the time frame aspect as well too, because that's something too that can help with dealing with any type of volatility. Where if this is sort of a short time period on your on your radar too, it might not really have that significant impact and like you mentioned could just be an opportunity for your portfolio here that you mentioned. Yeah. Excellent. So Adrian, these are the, the seven you had pulled from the article. I've got a couple that I've just came up with as we were working on this and preparing for this that I'd like to bounce off you and get, get your thoughts. Awesome. Yeah. Go so, ahead. 
The first one I think will be, I think they'll both be somewhat controversial, but the first one is pay off your debt before investing or saving. So that's the conventional wisdom. Make sure you're debt-free before you're investing or saving. And I'll, I'll point out a couple scenarios where I think this is definitely wrong, or one where I think it's, it's obviously wrong, which is many cases people will get a 401k with a match. Right. So if you put in a dollar, you get a dollar, you're getting 100 percent return. If it's a dollar for dollar matching program, that 100 percent return is a greater return than your cost of the debt, meaning that the interest rate you're paying on the debt is probably less than the 100 percent return you're getting on the 401k. The second example I'm going to give you where I think it's it's important to um, save or invest uh, versus paying off debt first is. I believe the only way to get out of debt completely is to have enough cash on hand uh, where there's an opportunity or an emergency, an opportunity like an annual vacation, an emergency like the car breaks down or you know water heater breaks down at home, something like that, that you pay for it yourself versus using a credit card to do it. So if you're always focused on paying off your debt and these emergencies arise, you won't have the cash available to actually pay for these things. However, if you've built cash simultaneously as you're paying off debt, when an emergency comes up, you don't have to use the card. You've, you've saved enough for it. Uh, so that's for our, our younger listeners. But Adrian, I'd love your thoughts on that. Would you, would you agree with the points I've made or would you think that conventional wisdom of paying off the debt first is, is the better move? Well, I do like what conventional wisdom is going for here, too, especially if you have a debt that just has an extremely high rate where that's going to be hard to beat with any investment opportunity you can find out there. So that's one thing I agree to. But the other part of it is, again, it probably may be driven here by an individual's goals as well, like you mentioned here, where it comes to having a certain um, cash reserve or some emergency fund built up as well before you prioritize paying off debt because you don't want to be feeling very constrained where you're prioritizing paying off debt and then you have an emergency come up as well. So that's something where I could see the drawback as well. And again, it's really just driven by your goals. If there's something that you're trying to build up a lot of cash for and make a significant purchase as well, maybe you'll take those uh, those debts accumulating that interest rate, if it's not too bad, just so you can save up enough to reach that goal that you have in mind. And then after that goal is achieved, prioritize paying off the debt. So it really is based on the individual here and what their, what their priorities are, I guess I would be my final take on that. Yeah, I, I think priorities do matter. But going back to what you had said, even with the interest rate on the debt, I'll concede that, especially if we're talking about a savings account versus like a consumer debt, like a credit card, the credit card debt will always be always be higher. But uh, my point being is if you focus on that and an emergency comes up and you don't have the money to pay for the emergency yourself, what happens to many people, or I'd, I'd venture to say most, although I don't have any data behind it, is if they haven't been using this card at all for, let's say, six months, they've paid it way down. Well, then when they use it once for this, for this um, emergency, they use it again and again for a little while and then the statement comes in or something and then they catch themselves. And so people end up with a range of debt they're always in. I used to call that the debt cycle. They're always within that, that debt cycle. And to get out of that cycle, you need, you need the cash. So uh, 
as as I think we've said for many of these points, it is it is based on the individual and their and their situation. But this is one of them that I think is worth worth looking at. The other one I'll give you is that um, that you should always have a mortgage. What's interesting is my first one is arguing to save while you keep your debt. This one is saying there's a case to be completely debt free, even of the good debt, which is which is a mortgage. And so. Uh, conventional wisdom says that you know the mortgage is the is uh, the lowest rate debt you'll typically get. It is deductible as well, and that you'll outperform in your investments over over the mortgage. I will agree with all of those all of those points. Uh, what I think those points are missing, though, is for some people, it's more important to be debt free than the incremental gains they'd have by keeping the mortgage and having the returns on their portfolio. It makes them feel better in their uh, retirement. It simplifies their financial life a little bit by not having this this one big debt. So I'm not advocating this for any everyone by any means, but the conventional wisdom of always have a mortgage, I think there are a lot of situations where that that is not um, a good move for many people. I actually had a client years ago where I ran this analysis for them. They retired, paid off their home, they went to complete their taxes, and the accountant said, you have no tax deductions, uh, maybe you should get a mortgage. I then did the math for them, and it was like the difference of like $1,000 a year when you when you actually map it all out. And they said, well, it's not worth $1,000 for me to have a mortgage, so they, they, they passed on it. In that story, what I want to illustrate is that is that the always have a mortgage may not always be a significant difference in your financial life. The deduction may not be that great. What you may earn additionally may not be that great. And you may not want to uh, have a mortgage. So I think there are scenarios. I spoke to a client uh, um, about this once with their scenario, and I was told by their mortgage person, I'm the only person they've advised or they've ever heard, they've ever heard say that. And, um, I wear that badge with pride because to me that says I analyzed this person's situation, helped them figure out what was best for them because they very much wanted to be mortgage-free, even though it was against the uh, conventional wisdom or what the crowd believes. Yeah, I mean, you pretty much hit on all the points, especially when it comes to that. You have to really run the numbers just to see what opportunities are out there and maybe look at how it really fits into your plan. So those are all great points, Roshan. Excellent. So we've shared nine ways uh, conventional wisdom may um, lead you in the wrong direction, or, or as the uh, article says, where conventional wisdom is just wrong. And I, hopefully we've given you things to think about and consider, and we've said this many times. I feel like we should just throw in uh, another one just to make it 10. Let's just throw in practice makes perfect. That's a <laughs> good one. Or as far as like lessons when it comes to investing, just your experiences can really uh, shape how you can do it. But also you could probably, it could probably affect you in the long run as well, where you maybe should do a lot of research and your homework before you just throw yourself out there in the market a lot. So I guess that's the only thing I'd have a pushback against that phrase, but I just want to throw in a 10th one, a bonus one, just uh, round it off. Yeah. Um, uh, which one are we going with? Practice makes perfect. I'm For those of you watching me, I'm reading across my desk. I've got a Buffettism poster to see if it's words of wisdom from Warren Buffett to see if there's there are any of these that are against conventional wisdom on here. 
uh, where we can go with Adrian Yours practice, I guess, doesn't always make perfect. Yeah, exactly. Especially when it comes to investment. We mentioned before, there is no holy grail of investment. So that would be pretty hard to obtain as well. Uh, yes, the, uh, agreed on on both of those points. So we've got 10 or 11 then now that, that, we've, that, we've, that we've shared. For everyone that's joined us, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. This has been the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Take control and achieve your goals. Schedule a conversation with Roshan, Adrian, or Eric today at retirementlifestyleshow.com. Roshan and Eric are certified financial planner practitioners. They, along with Adrian, are investment advisor representatives and serve clients across the U.S. with financial planning and investment advice through RTA Wealth. If you found this show helpful, gain knowledge, or enjoy the time you spent with us, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, to download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, to ask us a question or to schedule a conversation, go to retirementlifestyleshow.com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arate Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arate Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. The show hosts offer investment advice through Arte Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor, and securities through Arte Wealth Management, LLC, member FEMRA, SIPC, and NFA. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw in Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube Audio Library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. I am Ray Voices. Thank you for listening.